This is Growing the Valley, a podcast by the University of California, Agriculture and Natural Resources. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Melliron, Farm Advisor for Butte, Tehama, and Glen Counties. I'm your other host, Phoebe Gordon, Orchard Farm Advisor for Madera and Merced Counties. today with Arnold Bloom, who is a professor of plant sciences at UC Davis. And so we are going to be continuing the climate change series, and this time we're going to focus on the effects of climate change on crop plants. And so if you listen to this and the weed episode, you're going to notice that there's a lot of things in common between the two. However, the focus is going to be different because we care about our crop plants. We care about killing the weeds. So welcome to the podcast, Arnold. Thank you. Okay. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. Well, I guess let's just hop in. So why don't you just cover some of the basics of climate change? There's a lot of aspects of climate change that are complex and confuse people, but one thing that's fairly non-controversial is that carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere have risen markedly over the last few decades. And so I'd like to start there because that is a focal point for how plants will respond. So just to give you some background, when I started my research, uh, the first tank of standard gas I I purchased had a CO2 concentration of 0.032%, or 320 parts per million, 0.032%. And now the 420 parts per million, or 0.042%. So over my career, the amount of concentration and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has risen about uh, 30%. And that's not controversial. There's uh, numbers from all over the planet that shows that's uh, fairly consistent in most places. And it's thought to be the result of human activities, in particular the burning of fossil fuels. There's some wiggle room there, but not much. So uh, just keep in your mind that that uh, CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere worldwide have increased markedly, 30% or so, over a, one person's career, uh, that being me, since I am the focal point right here now. Now, this is going to have a major influence on how plants perform, because uh, as many of you know, or the rest will know by the end of today's talk, that Carbon dioxide is a major component of how plants do photosynthesis, and this is the source of energy uh, for life on Earth in general. So carbon dioxide has a carbon atom in it, that's what the C in CO2 is, and that carbon atom is at a low energy state. What plants do is they use sunlight, that energy from the sun, to take that low energy carbon and carbon dioxide and make it a high energy carbon in carbohydrate. That's the the initial reactions of a process called carbon fixation, which is part of the light independent reactions of photosynthesis, changing a low energy carbon and carbon dioxide to a high energy carbon and carbohydrate. What we do when we run, skip and jump is that we take those high energy carbon compounds, organic carbon compounds, and we uh, catabolize them, that is, we fire them, that is, we convert a, a high energy carbon and carbohydrate to a low energy carbon and carbon dioxide, which we exhale. 
And that energy difference is used to power all the functions of life. Living things are very highly ordered, and to maintain that order takes a lot of energy. And that energy essentially comes from the breakdown of organic carbon, like carbohydrates, to CO2. So as you can imagine, plants have to gather a lot of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, then use sunlight to convert that into carbohydrate. Now, with the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere at 0.032%, like it was when I started my career, you can imagine that they have to really gather that quite aggressively because it is at such a low concentration. For comparison, they are competing with other gases like oxygen, which is 21%. So you can compare 0.032% to 21%. And in fact, those two gases compete for a same part of the same process. And we'll go into that. So this process of photosynthesis carbon fixation is one that is a really determines how much a biomass a plant gathers, and therefore it determines the yields of all our crop plants. So most of you have been exposed to at least that level of information. And where I want to go from here is to talk about other resources that plants need to be productive. And it's not just plants, it's you and I. We also need to gather the same resources, and that includes water, And the reason we need water is that uh, all of our biochemical reactions occur in an aqueous solution that's inside our bodies, inside our cells. And we need nutrients as well that provide the other elements that make up a living and breathing person, which I assume I'm doing right now. So these uh, three types of resources, I call it the resource triangle, include energy, in this case, light, to take up carbon dioxide and convert it into high energy organic compounds, water, so that it provides the medium for the reactions that are required for living things, and nutrients. And I'm going to focus on one nutrient in particular, that being nitrogen, because that's the nutrient that plants require in highest amounts. Now, these all interact with one another, as you might imagine. And so why it is important as atmospheric carbon dioxide increases, it affects the water balance as well as the nutrient balance. And that's the focus of my research and what I'd like to share with you today. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah. So can you share, you know, I remember from my basic, at least when I was taking undergraduate classes, like more than 10 years ago at this point, you know, I remember at least at that point in time, we were thinking that increased levels of CO2 actually increase water savings in some plants. Is that Do people still think that's what's going to happen? Yes, indeed. Well, with every complex issue, there's many sides to it. So let's say that there's general thought is that the water use efficiency of plants will increase for for reasons that I'd like to go into. But this will also be somewhat counteracted by the fact that we're also going to experience high temperatures. So water loss will be generally higher. So if I could go into some of those details and the balance between those, the greater water use efficiency because of higher CO2 versus the higher temperatures because the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide will read to a higher temperatures and therefore more water loss is a balance that is going to vary from place to place and from plant species to plant species. So there's no simple answer. And this is what I tell my students is that anyone who gives you a simple answer to a complex question is uh, really not 
being honest with you. So yeah, why don't you get into it then? Okay, so let's look at what's happening with water relations in plants. Now, uh, the general dogma is that the plants are faced with a dilemma these poor plants, that they have to take in carbon dioxide that they can convert into organic carbon through openings within their plant parts. And the main opening through which carbon dioxide enters are holes in the leaves called stomata. And But those same openings allow water vapor to escape from inside the plant. Now, the plant to be functioning has to have all its internal parts being a very, very high uh, humidity, near 100% humidity, it's wet. As I said, biochemical reactions have to occur in water. In fact, the CO2 has to, to participate in photosynthesis, has to be dissolved in water. So inside the leaf, you have 100% water, and outside the leaf on a day like today, and for most of California, which I think includes most of your audience, the, the relative humidity outside is quite low. It's quite dry, as most of you realize. And so the driving force causing water to leave a the inside spaces of a leaf, for example, is very, very high because there's such a concentration difference, 100% humidity inside the leaf, maybe 30%, 20% outside the leaf. And that really drives a lot of water movement outside the leaf. Yet the carbon dioxide concentration driving CO2 into the leaf, outside it's what, 0.042%? Inside the leaf, it's about, well, it can only get down to zero, but it's usually 0.05%. So it's a very small concentration difference driving CO2 in, large concentration driving water out. And so in most cases, plants lose about 100 pounds of water for every pound of carbon dioxide converted into biomass. And those of you who've ever watered a plant realize the amount of water that you have to apply is quite large compared to the change in mass of the plant gathering organic carbon to make its body and ultimately the parts that we harvest for yield. So that means the water use efficiency of plants is relatively low. Now, what will happen as CO2 rises? There could be two different extreme strategies. One extreme strategy is that the plants keep the openings in their leaves at the same aperture. And what will happen as CO2 in atmosphere increases, that will cause a greater force driving CO2 into the leaf because there'll be higher concentration outside driving it into the leaf. And if they keep it at the same opening, that means there'll be higher concentrations inside the leaf. And that will stimulate photosynthesis, carbon fixation, biomass accumulation. But the same opening leaves will still let water release, and so there may be more biomass accumulation, but there'll be the same amount of water loss. The other philosophy is that plants could actually try to keep the concentration in CO2 at the same level it is today at our current levels of CO2. That means that the amount of CO2 being driven into leaf was modest, but if they close their stomata to keep the amount of CO2 inside the leaf at the same level, they will lose less water. So they may gain the same amount of carbon dioxide because the CO2 being driven into the leaf will be the same, but the water being lost because those openings are smaller will be less, and therefore they will lose less water for the same amount of carbon gain. Now, when people have done measurements to see which philosophy plants follow, you might uh, have guessed the answer, you people who are clever out there. 
that in fact plants take the middle ground as they usually do, that they close their stomata a little bit so they lose a little bit less water uh, and they raise the CO2 inside their leaves a little bit until they gain a little bit more carbon. In both cases, they grow a bit more, and they lose a little less water, and so water use efficiency goes up. And so when people expose plants that are uh, normally under standard atmospheric conditions, they find under elevated conditions that we anticipate by the end of the century, usually the water use efficiency goes up about 30% at a given temperature. Why did I say at a given temperature? The idea is that CO2 enrichment in the atmosphere also lead to higher temperatures. And as many of you realize, if you go outside in the summer in California, particularly in the Central Valley, that as it gets hotter, the gradient driving water out of your body and driving water outside of the plant has to do with how much water the atmosphere can absorb. And that goes up exponentially with temperature. That means exponentially is that the change from 10 degrees to 20 degrees is less, and the amount of water that can be absorbed by the atmosphere is less than the change from 20 to 30 degrees. It's not a called linear relationship. We lose more water as it gets hotter. And plants need to be watered more frequently as we all should know if you've ever dealt with plants, as many of you have, that the amount of water you have to apply gets greater as temperature goes up. So we have two contradictory things there, and we try to balance it all, and I'll explain how we try to look into balancing it all. We have the idea that plants will become more water use efficient because CO2 will be higher, and therefore the openings of the leaves will be a little bit smaller, and plants will grow a little bit more. That's one thing, and the countervailing forces are that the higher temperatures that we expect, and I'll go into those at the talk, uh, we do expect in California about uh, two to four degrees higher temperature Celsius, being almost uh, six to nine degrees Fahrenheit higher temperatures by the mm -hmm. end of the century in most places in California. That mm -hmm. will cause more water to be lost because the atmosphere can absorb more water. Absolutely. And more heat waves too. Oh yeah. And more dust mm -hmm. to this heat stroke and Working mm -hmm. in the field will be much more dangerous. I looked it up this yes. morning. We anticipate that the temperature in uh, Sacramento will be equivalent to almost the temperature in Indio, <laughs> down in yeah. the Imperial Valley by the end of the century, under some yeah. scenarios. Yeah, so that's a excellent going over how water use in the plant itself will change. So you mentioned it, or you just dropped a little teaser. Can you go into how it's going to change nitrogen dynamics in plants? Glad you asked. This yeah. has essentially been the focus of my life for the last 30 years because, in fact, most people believe plants are stupid. And I've got to prove to you today, plants are not stupid. It's the people who study plants sometimes aren't as smart as they should be. The reason for this is that as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere increases, people thought that there would be this an unexpected bounty of plant productivity and crop yields. Because as I mentioned, the process of converting carbon dioxide into biomass would be stimulated by the higher CO2 levels. And in fact, it was thought that might increase productivity by 30% or 40% because CO2 is so limiting. 
there's another factor that uh, I'm going to confuse you all by saying plants have uh, some components that are somewhat a split personality. So the protein that actually reacts first with carbon dioxide as it enters a leaf and starts it on its way to make it being converted into a carbohydrate is the most prevalent protein on the planet. And it's known as Rabisco. It actually was named after the National Baking Company. But the idea of Rabisco can react with carbon dioxide and send it on its way to becoming a sugar. But Rabisco also can react as an evil twin, a reaction that occurs simultaneously, where instead of making sugar, it burns off sugars by reacting with oxygen. And the balance between these two reactions, making sugars from carbon dioxide or breaking down sugars by reacting with oxygen and burning it off, just like you would burn log in your fire, those two reactions depend on the relative amounts of carbon dioxide and oxygen inside the leaf. As I mentioned, which I'm sure you all have imprinted on your brain by now, at least I hope you do, carbon dioxide is normally about 0.042%, where oxygen is 21%. So it's not really that fair a fight. So plants discriminate in part to, to, for carbon dioxide, but they do interact with oxygen. And when they interact with oxygen, that's called photorespiration. And it was thought that process essentially burned off sugars and plants got nothing for it because they could not avoid reacting with oxygen because of Rubisco always could not differentiate between the two gases as well as it needed to do that. So it's thought that plants were stupid and that for billions of years, they've never been able to discriminate between the two gases enough, this enzyme, and therefore they wasted about 40% of their energy. So as CO2 in the atmosphere goes up, photorespiration declines, carbon fixation, photosynthesis increases, and people thought that would lead to about a 30 or 40% enhancement of productivity. And this was a fact that was broadly publicized by the coal burning companies of the United States saying, we're doing you all a favor by pumping out CO2 from burning coal. And they went to every politician they could and tried to convince them that they were the savior of mankind and would lead to a great boost in productivity and uh, agricultural output. That happens in the short term, but if you look in the long term, more than a couple of years, and embarrassingly few experiments that have done that, you find that, yes, there is an initial boost in plant photosynthesis and output by about 30% for a month, maybe. But under longer exposures to the elevated CO2 concentrations we anticipate in the next few decades, and those are, I don't know if anybody's looked at, but the prognosis is it, it's assumed that by the end of the century, carbon dioxide concentrations will be almost double or three times what they are today. But if we put them under those conditions now to see how they react, we find that after a period of time, the productivity of those plants declines. And people had argued for decades why that was so. And I, in my little lab with my little instruments, found out that the reason for it, and people really objected to it, 
is that plants aren't stupid. They're not just wasting energy with photorespiration. They're not wasting 30, 40%. That process releases energy that is used to convert nitrate into protein. So that when you inhibit that process under elevated CO2, what you do is you make the plants protein deficient. So this article, which I teased you about with uh, blooming plant by bloom and plant, we followed wheat protein production in California for the last 35 years. And indeed, what wheat plants are doing on very controlled field sites for field trials, they're keeping the same amount of protein in the grain, but they're reducing their yield by about 20%. So if you look at the same genotypes, same conditions, and this is true not just for wheat, but it's true for many other crop plants, that if you grow them under rising CO2 conditions, in fact, their protein content declines. And to prevent that, you either can cut back your yield or you just let your protein content decline. So food quality is in danger under the conditions we anticipate by the end of the century. And in fact, that's true for all grains. They decline by about 15%. Potatoes, peas, soybeans, not so much, but somewhat. All other major crops on which our, the human diet depends. That's also going to be true for, because we grow protein with almonds and walnuts and pistachios as well. Yeah, the amount of protein in the human diet that comes from those sources is small. I don't think uh, people have actually done much in work on the effect of elevated CO2 on those protein sources. Maybe you can correct me. I haven't heard of any projects. It's hard, I think, to have controlled levels of carbon dioxide around something as large as an almond tree. Yeah, they do it to, with pine trees, loblolly pine. They've done it with Vaspin, but it's at great cost and uh, not as successful as they had hoped. Yeah, but it could be. By the time they're producing nuts, they are at a relatively large size that, to keep under controlled atmospheric conditions. Another effect of climate change is increased temperatures. And so what are some of the effects of increased temperatures, either from temperature itself or what it's going to do to seasons? If you look at most plants have a certain efficiency in terms of it's a balance between how much photosynthesis is affected by temperature versus how much respiration is affected by the higher temperature. And most of the crops that we grow, like the middle ground, some plants are obviously oriented to higher temperatures and we grow them under those conditions. Some under the higher temperatures, the losses in terms of maintenance and other types of respiration get overtakes the gains and so that they have a lower temperature optimum. Most species that we grow in California have relatively moderate uh, productivity that's the temperature insensitive between about 20 and about 28 degrees. We have some crops that do better in cold temperatures. We grow them in the winter, some that do better in the summer. As I mentioned, with the temperatures we anticipate by the end of the century, places that used to be somewhat moderate, and particularly some crops require a cold exposure to be productive, like I guess a number of them you mentioned, like pistachios and so forth, that they don't really become productive unless they have a some cold period, wheat to some degree as well, that they will be more endangered. And so the zones where we grow them, where we actually go, that one reason California is the bounty of food production is that we do have quite a large state that has many different temperature zones. And we take advantage of it by our rotation. So I then had a colleague who worked on potatoes and that uh, 
fact, there are potatoes being produced someplace in California all year round. Same thing's true for lettuce. There's places in California all year round that are producing lettuce. Sometimes they go to the, in the cold periods, in so-called cold periods, winter in California, they go to the deserts. And in the uh, summer periods, they go to the more coastal regions. But that's how we maintain such a bounty out of California, moving where we grow plant uh, various crops depending on the temperature regime. As I mentioned, as those temperature regimes change, as, for example, Fresno, California, becomes more like uh, Indio, California. Again, the times that we grow certain crops in Indio will become more like when we grow, we'll be having to grow them in Fresno in the upper San Joaquin Valley. So these things will be of uh, major concern, how we change where we grow things and to what degree. And the example I like to use is one that's uh, usually uh, when one talks about climate change, everybody, I ask the students to pick a, a species that they want to uh, study and how climate change may affect that species. And when I was not careful, it turned out everyone in the class picked polar bears or penguins because they're known as charismatic megafauna. And so I think the charismatic megaflora is wine grapes. And why I picked wine grapes is that if you grow wines in the Napa, Sonoma County, you may for Cabernet Sauvignon get about $250 a ton of grapes. Where if you grow that same variety in, say, Fresno, you may get only about 25 to 30 pound a ton of grapes. And so you can see that the value of the grapes to the winemaking process is very much determined by where it's grown. And it's always thought that the areas where you get premium wine grape growth are those places where it has essentially warm, sunny days and cool nights. And that's why uh, Napa Sonoma were so extolled as a, a wonderful place for growing premium grapes almost every year. As the temperatures in those valleys are changing, in fact, a lot of the production of grape shifted, for example, to the foothills, Amador County, for example, and up the coast where there's less of these temperature extremes. And it's predicted by the end of the century that very few places in California will have the climate that allows them to grow the premium grapes that demand such a premium when they are sold for making the best wines. And in fact, they will probably move north to Oregon, Washington, and maybe even further into British Columbia. So these things are of utmost concern for those people in that very esoteric world of uh, grape growing and winemaking. But the same lessons are to be had if one looks at other crops that require more moderate temperatures that, in fact, certain parts of California will not be as well suited to the production of those particular crops. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. You kind of touched on it a little bit where you talked a little bit about what's going to happen to respiration with increased temperatures. Can you just go over when plants photosynthesize, when they respire, and the dynamics of warmer night temperatures and that sort of thing and how it might affect plant growth? Oh, yeah, sure. During the nighttime, plants are quite busy, but they are doing different things. Obviously, photosynthesis is not happening because the sunlight necessary uh, for those energy conversions is not available. But the growth and maintenance and repair and recovery of water loss is happening in great amounts. As many of you know, that uh, 
by the end of the day, some parts of hot parts of California, even if you are watering the plant, your crop fairly extensively, by the end of the day, some of the plants look wilted. And by the morning, uh, they have recovered enough water from the soil under less water loss in the cooler temperatures of night to actually recover that water loss and are very turgid by the next morning and then proceed on their busy growth as they may want the following day until again they uh, might get water stressed at all. Usually if one looks at the response of respiration of all different types of plants as a function of temperature, you find that usually respiration goes up almost exponentially to one reaches about 40 degrees Celsius, which uh, I tried to convert in my head, which is about, uh, about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And then it crashes completely because above about 45 to 50 degrees centigrade, the, the plants really do very poorly if you, it's just like baking the plants, literally. Where carbon fixation has a temperature optimum that's a little bit lower. And as I said, by the balance between photosynthesis and respiration, you find that the net photosynthesis, which is the difference between total photosynthesis or gross photosynthesis and respiration, has a fairly level optimum between about 20 to 30 degrees centigrade. Just to make it explicit, so what's happening is the plants are making sugars during the day and they are breaking down some of those sugars at nighttime to continue doing what they need to do to stay alive. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Thank you. So in fact, plants again are not stupid. <laughs> they are survived longer than human beings. And so they, they can't run away from environmental extremes. And so they definitely adjust their metabolisms so that they maintain a homeostasis under most conditions they will encounter. But even then, because of the change in temperature that we've already experienced on the order of about one degree Celsius, almost one and a half degrees Fahrenheit for the last uh, several decades, we're finding that distribution of plants in native and natural ecosystems are moving to higher latitudes and higher altitude. That is, they are migrating through, say, distribution of their seeds and seedlings to levels where they're more able to control temperatures in their optimum ranges. So we'll be doing the same. We'll be changing our growing seasons and our growing locations in agriculture to uh, also match those temperature changes as well. Or working on breeding crops have a higher temperature optimum or uh, use less water as well. And those yeah. are goals of many breeders. Yeah, and there are some plants that are grown in much warmer places that we, I guess, don't eat a lot of here. But like I think amaranth and sorghum and that sort of thing, we might maybe be seeing a little bit more of those in our future yeah, too. Yeah, except they don't store very well. Okay, well, but is there anything that you kind of wanted to mention? I have a whole course on this. <laughs> available to the public so that you can get to listen to me for, if you wanted to, you can listen to me rant uh, the gospel according to Bloom for, uh, some of my students tried to do it the night before the exam, uh, listen to me for 12 hours straight, which is, I think, uh, almost like waterboarding, but it's, uh, you could do that as well. And the website is uh, something easy to remember, and it's uh, climate change course, all one word, climatechangecourse.org. And uh, there's a whole bunch of like 48 mini interactive lectures. And there's a free textbook 
now it's free now, but Cambridge University Press wants to take it over and they want to charge for it. So you better do it now <laughs> while it's free. Yeah, I'll make sure to share the link in our podcast notes and on the website. That'd be great. So those things, uh, advertisements for myself, free to you and uh, share it with whomever you wish. Okay, well, thank you so much, Arnold. Thanks, a pleasure. And if questions do arise, you please contact us and we'll see what we can do to uh, decrease any confusion that I've uh, tilled into <laughs> your brain in today's talk. Thanks for listening to Growing the Valley, a UC A&R podcast. You can find out more about this episode at our website, growingthevalleypodcast.com. We'd like to thank the Almond, Pistachio, Walnut, and Prune Boards for their support. We'd also like to thank my sister, Muriel Gordon, for writing and recording the theme music.